You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders. Our story today centers on a town in Iraq called Hawija, one of the last two strongholds of ISIS, or the so-called Islamic State. Tens of thousands of people are still trapped in the town. Nina Rajani, an MSF doctor from London, was recently posted to Kirkuk, a city and district in northern Iraq that's sheltering people who have managed to flee Hawija. I had quite a tough time with my first mission. I look back on it now and I'm glad I did it, but at the time it was really tough. It was a sexual violence, gender-based violence project. Nina's first posting with MSF was to Papua New Guinea. Because of the pervasiveness of sexual violence, it's one of the most dangerous countries in the world to be a woman. It was very emotionally difficult and after I came back I was so happy to be home that I thought I'm not going to think about doing another MSF mission for a while, if, if not ever. And then one year passed and then another year passed and before you know it, five years have passed and I'm at home one day watching the news and thinking to myself, God, this is really terrible what's happening. There's this so much sadness going on <laughs> so much conflict and these poor people and I wish there's something that I could do and then I suddenly thought there is something I can do <laughs> oh and then it sort of came to me in a light bulb moment maybe I'm ready to to go back out there again and then once the idea was in my mind that was it really after an assignment in Jordan working with Syrian refugees Nina got the call that she was needed in Iraq as you might imagine, when the offer of um, a post in Iraq came up, my I wasn't immediately excited about it and jumping up and down at the chance. You can't help but absorb some of the information that you're fed by the media, which is of you know, Iraq being a highly dangerous place, full of conflict and not particularly appealing at all. Before the current crisis, Hawija was home to around 100,000 people. Today, it's one of the last two significant Iraqi towns, along with Tal Afar, still under IS militant control. Tens of thousands of people are still stuck there. But some have been managing to escape to Kirkuk, where Nina was based working as a doctor in a camp for displaced people. Not everyone was able to leave. Some people were trapped. Some people were too old, disabled, to be able to make the journey. So we heard lots of stories from people who had to leave behind relatives who were unable to make the journey. We also heard many stories of people who carried their elderly relatives, disabled children, disabled relatives, the entire length of the journey, which was incredible. The journey from Hawija to the safety point and refugee camp where Nina and the MSF team were based takes several days on foot. This is a journey through a front line in the battle between IS and Kurdish forces, through a territory peppered with landmines. It wasn't easy for them to leave. So we heard stories about from many people that the area was heavily landmined. I believe IS had laid down new landmines and... They were IS snipers as well who made it very difficult for people to leave because they were obviously seen as defectors. There would be snipers who shot people and killed them as they were trying to leave, as they were trying to escape. People were desperate to get away from the life that they'd been living. 
With Hawija besieged, the town's residents not only faced the threat of violence, food and water had also run out and people were left without a functioning healthcare system. And it's worth bearing in mind that Hawija was an area of conflict before IS took control. For those who make it to the entry point of the camp, that first moment of safety brings with it an initial, overwhelming sense of freedom after a long period of suffering. By the time people reached us, they were overwhelmingly full of relief. So that was the overarching emotion, I would say. And some of them appeared elated, elated to have reached safety, um, to not be living in fear anymore, I suppose. I think they felt, you know, they were, they were delighted to have their freedom back. But then again, I hesitate in saying that because that feeling of freedom was quite soon replaced by a new feeling of repression. Many of them were kept in camps and some of the camps were closed. So it was a very brief, temporary feeling of freedom. But at least they could smile again and laugh again without the fear anymore. And there was, of course, a lot of sadness, partly for the people that they had to leave behind. We saw quite a lot of cases of PTSD from people who had horrific experiences. For example, stories, young children having witnessed their, their father being, being beheaded by ISIS. The men, the first thing that they all did was shave their beards. So it was very unusual to see a man with a beard in the camp. So I guess for them, a real expression of exercising their freedom there. We often hear news coverage from Iraq about the effect of bombings and fighting on the local population. But today we'll be talking about the more ordinary medical issues faced by these people, the ones that don't reach the news. Ailments and illnesses that become much more serious when a protracted conflict means there is no access to healthcare. We went to the area as an emergency response, a response to the mass displacement of people from Hawija. Initially, we weren't really sure what to expect. We thought that we might see lots of war wounded people, but it soon became clear that the conflict was more focused in Mosul and that in Hawija we weren't seeing so many war wounded yet. Um, and that really the focus was on primary care. Um, so we did provide support in the local hospitals, in the emergency departments of the local hospitals with a view to um, m making an impact with regards to war wounded when it began. But the immediate focus of the project was um, on the basic healthcare, primary healthcare of IDPs. So we were based primarily in one of the camps. Many of the internally displaced people, or IDPs, who Nina treated had not been able to see a doctor for months, even years. It meant that there were many patients with what should have been straightforward conditions to treat, but had dramatically worsened because they'd been left for so long without treatment. We began in, in November 2016, and quite quickly the, the camp actually filled up and reached its capacity, which was for 10,000. It began very simply with 
just taking boxes to the camp and to the entry points each day and coming home with those boxes and restocking the boxes every night. And then we built it from the ground up, really. So it became a a properly functioning clinic after several weeks with um, triage room, waiting room, consultation rooms, emergency room, pharmacy. And then we were able also to add the mental health component of the project. The story you're about to hear is written by Nina about some of these patients. In particular, a little boy whose story will stay with Nina forever. The story is read by actress Aspen Rice. I don't think I'll ever forget the sound. A sort of high-pitched, repetitive moan, like an animal in distress. I didn't notice it at first, but once it registered, it was all I could hear. My tired brain was trying to decipher what could be causing such a strange noise in our little MSF clinic, situated in a camp for internally displaced people, just a few kilometres from the front line. The moan grew louder, and when the door to the metal container opened, it became apparent that the distress was not that of an animal, but a small boy, aged about four, in his mother's arms. The mother had come to the clinic, accompanied by a female family member. Their surprisingly calm and resigned expressions appeared to contradict the urgency of the boy's cry. His face was peeking over his mother's shoulder, so I shuffled around to say hello. What I saw was a thin boy in a lot of pain, both of his eyes extremely inflamed and tightly shut. His mother explained that he was unable to open them, that they had been like that for four months. I exchanged glances with my Iraqi medical colleague, and it was immediately clear that we were both thinking the same thing. Four months. How could it be possible that this poor child has been like this for four months? The silence in the room was punctuated at three second intervals by the noise coming from his mouth, monotonous and melancholy. The mother explained that the family had recently come from Hawija, where, for over two years, they had no access to healthcare due to the occupation. Several months ago, the boy's eyes became red and sticky with discharge. They tried bathing them in the hope it would resolve, but the condition became progressively worse until he was no longer able to open his eyes at all. There was no option of medical help, and so the family were forced to watch his condition deteriorate, feeling more and more helpless as each agonising day passed. As people they knew began pouring out of their hometown, the family were finally also able to make their escape too one night crossing a heavily landmined area peppered with snipers and days later reaching the safety of the camp. I was the first doctor they had managed to access. Making every effort to disguise our alarm, I carried out my assessment of the boy with my colleague. It was certain that he had had a severe eye infection, which had probably caused quite severe damage to the cornea and was possibly caused by vitamin A deficiency. Although he was not malnourished, we knew that the food supply in Hawija was not consistent and many types of food were difficult to source or overpriced. In any case, we would not be able to treat him in our outpatient clinic. He would need intravenous antibiotics, expert paediatric care and close supervision. Luckily, we were able to assist the family in their safe passage from the camp to a nearby hospital for the secondary care which he needed. Such severe cases in our outpatient clinic were thankfully not a daily occurrence, but they will stay with me forever. Apart from the young boy in this story, 
there was the baby born with a hole in the heart who would come to our clinic with recurrent chest infections and failure to thrive, its only hope of survival an expensive and inaccessible surgical operation. There was also the young girl with precocious puberty, a condition in which puberty comes early, in this case at the age of six. The hormone injections which she required were expensive and beyond the limitations of our basic primary healthcare centre. We tried our best to help them, of course, these and all our patients. On one occasion, a woman ran to us hysterical with tears, pouring down her face. She brought her baby, who had been sick with diarrhoea and vomiting. As I desperately pumped up and down on her tiny emaciated body, I caught the eye of the other MSF doctor and in that moment realised that she was already dead. The bulk of the cases we dealt with were not that different from the kind of patient I might come across in my East London general practice. Young women with unexpected pregnancies, babies with chest infections, elderly patients with joint pains. Some demanded antibiotics for their viral illnesses. Others wept as they described the pain of their losses. Many begged for me to provide medical certificates for them to be able to leave the camp. When we first started working in the camp, Temperatures were close to freezing. I would return back to our MSF house each night and as I stood under the steaming hot shower, attempting to wash away the troubles of the day, I would always think of my patients in their overcrowded tents with their extremely restricted and of course unheated water supply. I couldn't imagine not having that hot shower to warm myself, being able to change into fresh pyjamas and dive under the duvet. When the rain came and fell for days on end, I would think of them all huddled in their tents their flimsy footwear preventing them from venturing outside, and I couldn't imagine what it must be like to be them. Knowing and not knowing. Knowing that these experiences are shaping the formative years of your child's life. Not knowing if and when you will again see the family members you have left behind. So this is why when well-meaning friends and acquaintances tell me I am a hero and ask, how did you do it? I smile weakly and begin to protest. But how do I put into words what I have experienced? What I've learned, the kindness and strength my patients have shown me. For it is they who are the true heroes. And I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to make some tiny contribution to their lives. The image of the little boy with his eyes clamped shut from infection hits home just how difficult it is for these families to get medical care before arriving at the camp. It's hard to imagine being in the position of those parents having to helplessly watch their child become blind from infection. It was heartbreaking. I definitely had to hold back the tears when I saw that that young boy because not only do you feel bad for them in that moment but also you conjure up in your mind this picture of everything that this family have been through for the previous few months and then my mind kind of goes off into thinking about how unfair it is and that these people have had to suffer so much as I described in in the piece of writing that his symptoms began with just redness of the eyes a little bit of discharge quite sort of benign symptoms and I'm sure if that happened to your child here you would just take them to the GP and probably get some antibiotic eye drops and that would probably cure it but as you heard from the story the family 
didn't have any access to healthcare where they came from and they weren't able to get any treatment for their child and so by the time he reached us he was in a really really bad state and it was really quite shocking seeing this child who'd been previously healthy and well with glued down eyes not being able to open them in obvious discomfort and to think that this poor child like he must have been so scared the fear that he must have felt um losing his sight and and being in so much pain rarely have i been so affected by a patient it happens once in a while but he'll definitely stick in my mind as one of those memorable memorable cases but it is an indication of how bad things were because you would imagine that that family would have done everything they could to have got out and get help for that for that child so the fact that he had to deteriorate to that point i think is very indicative of the the severity of the situation in Hawija a lot of people talked about escaping and i uh, rather than leaving and i think that that is a very good example of of how this was a, an escaping situation because really they weren't free to leave before they had that chance nina and the msf team were able to help the little boy make a full recovery but unfortunately the girl we also heard about who had a hole in the heart was a much more complicated case with regards to the the baby with the hole in the heart that was also very difficult because the family would come back to us quite often it's quite common for babies who are born with congenital heart deformities to get recurrent chest infections so the family would come to us quite often and the baby would have a chest infection which we would treat and i knew of course ultimately that this baby needed this heart operation but the family were really limited by finances of course if we were just a basic primary healthcare program we didn't have the capacity to provide surgical intervention for this for this baby so all we could do was really support the family in trying to get the help that they needed and we did that This is a common moral dilemma for MSF staff working overseas. Your project has an objective and a certain capacity. It's impossible to do everything. But that doesn't stop the guilt and exasperation that comes with not being able to treat every patient the way you could back home. Things like this come up and you go to your medical coordinator and you say surely we have to do something for this baby. We have to help them and and then you reminded of the limitations of what you can do. And yes, there's certain things we can do. We can advocate and we can liaise with other NGOs who might be able to help within the scope of their program. But ultimately, what you want to do really is just get out a wad of cash and give it to the family and say go. But then that's just going to open up a whole can of worms because if they hear that at the MSF clinic they're giving you money so that you can go and get your operation done, then you'll just be inundated with people and it gets out of control so it's a real challenge in the field having to say no to people because there's so much that we do do for people and 
it is very very rewarding and and it's so heartwarming and wonderful to see grateful patients but on the flip side there are also people that you can't help because it's outside of the scope of your program and saying no to people is hard in any situation but saying no to a a person who's walked for days left their home doesn't have anything and comes to you hoping that you're going to solve their problem and then to to say no to them we can't help you it's crushing it's really really hard but with limitations also come successes for every msf project for nina and her team this was setting up a clinic to treat non-communicable diseases or ncds for short non-communicable diseases are medical conditions that aren't caused by infection that last for long periods of time and progress slowly they're also known as chronic diseases the four main types of ncds are cardiovascular diseases like heart attacks and stroke cancer chronic respiratory diseases such as asthma and diabetes we knew that this would be an issue that would come up with regards to the health needs which we were responding to in the people who had fled from Hawija. we hired a health promotion team from within the population of the camp an incredible group of individuals some of them came from health backgrounds some not but we trained them um, and they went around the camp and they conducted a population survey and they were able to give us some numbers regarding the existing burden of NCDs in the camp and from that we were able to see that there was a great need as we imagined there would be. In humanitarian emergencies, especially where people are on the move, those with chronic conditions often aren't able to get the medicine and health care that they would during more stable times back home. This could be an inhaler for asthma or insulin to regulate blood sugar. In Kirkuk, Nina and the team could see this was a problem that was only going to get worse. We were luckily able to borrow NCD supplies from another MSF project, which was in country, a very successful um, NCD intervention in Hanukkah. We went there and we observed what they were doing there and we met the team and um, sat in on consultations and met with patients and learned what was going well for them and not what not so well and um, and so from that trip we were able to use the information from our already existing project to be able to in a way replicate what they were doing in our project but the idea was to do it even better, you know, because we were able to learn from their mistakes and as well. So on the basis of that trip, I was able to get a very good idea of how a successful NCD clinic should run. And so then I was able to sit down with my team and we, um, we made a plan of how we would get things started. NCDs are the leading cause of death in the world, accounting for 70% of all annual deaths. And 80% of these are in low to middle income countries, like Iraq. Taking what she'd learned from the Kanakin project, Nina and the team did what MSF does best, react and adapt to the current situation and, in the process, save lives. It was even more successful than I could have imagined 
because we had had people coming to us every day asking have you got this have you got that blood pressure tablet and up until we were able to get our program running we had to turn them away which was really difficult and people had managed to scrape around and find medications from outside of the camp some people had to make do without but it was so satisfying to be able to give them the medication that they really needed once we got up and running and we had some really happy and very grateful people and that was really nice to see. With the knowledge that she had led on a project that would help many of the people in the camp, Nina was happy to return to friends and family after such an intense assignment. But the situation for those living in the camp is still dire, with no foreseeable chance of returning home or for life to resume as normal. Always difficult to say goodbye to people when you leave a project, but in this case, I found particularly heartbreaking to say goodbye to the IDP members of staff who I'd worked with. It's a slightly odd feeling knowing the conditions that they're living in. There's so many emotions going on with me since I've returned and I find it very difficult to articulate what I'm feeling. There are, I would say, lots of inexplicable feelings of guilt. Guilt at having left these people behind. So I know that the majority of people who I worked with would have given their right arm to be able to come to Europe and to experience the opportunities which we have here. Shortly after I returned back to the UK, I met a friend for lunch and I took a walk in amongst the bluebells in the woods in Epping Forest and sent a photo to my team back in Iraq saying hi and sending them. I knew that they were very keen to see a photo of my life in the UK. And what they, one of them replied to me was that, oh gosh, all the, the flowers, you know, it looks so nice. Oh, I'd give anything to be able to take a walk in the wood and the flowers. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, they don't, they don't even have flowers out there. The fight to retake all areas of Iraq from IS continues to cause mass displacement and hardship. There are now over 3.2 million Iraqis displaced within the country, putting an immense strain on host communities. We want to thank Nina for appearing on the podcast to tell us more about the situation for these people and to show that in emergency situations, often the biggest threat to people is finding treatment for pre-existing conditions. Earlier in this series, we met Besh, an Iraqi refugee from Mosul, who told the incredible story of how he searched 70 refugee camps across Europe to find his mother. To hear firsthand about what refugees from Iraq are currently facing, make sure to listen to the fourth episode of this series. As always, it's your feedback, likes and shares that help spread the word about MSF and the people we help. Feel free to ask us a question in the comments section of msf.org.uk slash podcast or leave a comment on iTunes. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.